You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, welcome, everybody. And Rachel and Victoria, I have something special for you. If you look in your inboxes, oh boy. Oh, I emailed no. you a photo I'd like you to take a look at. Oh. All right. Mm. I don't I'm like scared. it when you send things. Oh, Kirk. wow. That is, it's like an animal volcano. <laughs> right. I want you to try your best to describe this for listeners. And I, I ahead of time, I just want to say this is going to be challenging. So I'm really curious to see how you describe this for people. Go ahead. All right. Hold on. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Okay, so I it. believe this is some sort of sea slug. Okay. And uh, you can see most of the slug's body. It has its little sluggy face, and it's kind of a, a mottled brown and white color, like a little bit of texture on it. But then mm. erupting out of its back, there is this cloud oh. of red. What is um, this? It... It looks like a special effect in a movie where there's like magic coming out of somebody's head or something. <laughs> I will say the body kind of reminds me of like a stegosaurus with like the blade okay. sticking yeah. out. I can see that. Uh, it looks like, um, I mean, it looks very blood-like in a lot of ways, like blood yeah. just gooping into the water and sort of diffusing. You mean the, the stuff coming out of the top or the animal itself? The stuff coming, stuff out, of coming out of the top. Okay, good. Um, the animal itself is kind of, I, I don't know, it's kind of cute I think in its, it's own cute. way. Uh, otherwise, See, to me, it looks like a cauliflower a bit. Yeah. I, I kind of think for viewers, it looks almost a little bit like a taco. If you can picture a taco. Oh, yeah. I could, yeah. That, it has the same coloration of like a hard shell taco. Yeah. Now, there's there's a few... Uh, little sort of appendages sticking off the taco, which is a little weird. Uh huh. But generally, it's kind of taco colored. With like but a yeah, beet uh, colored something coming out of it. You like you messed smoke, up. I guess a smoking taco or yeah. something. Yeah. Or maybe it's so, all the fillings happening coming out as you drop the taco, <laughs> and you're just so sad. Sure. If it's filled with blood, yeah. Well, what you are looking at is a Plysia californica, oh, otherwise wait, known wait, wait. as... Kirk, I'm going to stop you right yes. there. It's a Plysia. A Plysia? Uh-huh. It's oh. not just me! I took, a I took a chance. I actually didn't check on the pronunciation of this one. So a Plysia, uh, a Plysia californica, uh, and this one is uh, otherwise known as the California sea hare. Now, I should point out that's H-A-R-E... The furry members of the uh, order Lagomorphia uh, or Lagomorpha, uh, not H A I R, the 1968 Broadway hit rock musical. Just so we're clear which hair mm. we're talking about. Thanks okay. This is, you're welcome. This is actually kind of a bit of a throwback to Rachel's topic of the sea butterfly, uh, where a pelagic animal is named after a more familiar land based animal. Woo! And once again, the name is just 
the worst failure of imagination. They could have done so or, much more. Or perhaps, they, cause they didn't have tacos back then. I mean, perhaps it's a sign of an overactive imagination because no one would ever, ever confuse this for a hair. Wait, someone um, thought this looked like a hair? It absolutely does not. No, I guess here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to let scientists off the hook because they did not name this species. It has been known since way back when. That's an official time, way mm. back when. Uh, we actually get the name sea hare as a direct translation of the Latin name uh, Lipis or Lipis uh, Marinus. I'm sure I said that wrong. Uh, so I'm going to blame the ancient Greeks on this one. All right. uh, they called it a sea hare. I guess it does. It's kind of obscured in the photo I showed you guys, but they have sometimes these two little things that stick up that look kind of like ears. And so... Okay. Uh, the way it's bunched okay. up, you could kind of imagine had, like, like two the front little... legs and back legs of a hair. Yeah. Yeah, it had I, two little like it's weak. tube thing. It had like four tubes at the front from what we could see. Very weak. Uh, look, sea hairs, in spite of having an incredibly stupid name, uh, are an important part of my topic uh, this week because they are mimics. And last week, my Ooh. topic was mimicry. Now, I mentioned in passing last week that I was only addressing the main forms of mimicry, but there were many others out there. And the sea hare is an amazing, amazing example of one of them. So even if you haven't yet looked one up or seen a photo that I will try to post on social mm -hmm. media, um, just from the amazing description, you can probably guess that what they're mimicking is not a hare. Is it a taco? Right? It's also not a taco. Uh, the type of mimicry they employ is completely bizarre and wonderful, and I love it. And the strange planet we live on, I, I love so very much because this exists. Sea hares employ uh, phagio mimicry. Okay. Any guesses what that means? Phagio. I feel like this is ringing a bell, but it's not coming to me. Right. Phagio mimicry. Can you think of anywhere that that word... Phagio or phage is, is used. Well, there's like Centri uh, phages that kill vi yeah. uh, viral phages that kill bacteria. Mm -hmm. Good, yeah. You got a bacteriophage, yeah. which is another name for a virus that attacks uh, bacteria. That's good. Uh, that's kind of related. Have you heard of a corprophage? No. Oh, right. Like a... What is that? <laughs> that's an animal that eats its own poop. There you go. So, so phage means um, to eat. It comes from Latin, and it basically means to eat. So I think like a bacteriophage virus, the idea is that they're like eating viruses or eating bacteria. Okay. They're not, but I think that's kind of where that they get that. Okay. Well, I mean, hairs are coprophages. So. They are. They are, which is kind of cool. Uh, so what is phagomimicry, though? Yeah. Uh, it's, not, <clears throat> it's not mimicking eating poop. It's not that. It's not uh, mimicking so eating food? No, eating poop, I said. Oh, poop, right. Rachel, poop. Poop. Uh, the clue is the colorful cloud around the sea hair in the photo I sent you. Uh, that is ink, much like a, a squid would use as defense. Okay. Uh, if you can squirt colorful ink into the water and obscure the vision of your predator, that's very useful. Um, but that's only part of what's going on. The sea hair has taken this to the extreme. So there's actually two different glands that are involved here. One is uh, pretty much your standard ink gland, which a number of species have. Um, that produces sort of the cloud of ink, and I think some of the color also comes from that. 
Well, they have another gland called the opaline gland, uh, which releases a completely different kind of ink. And the ink from the opaline gland uh, contains amino acids like lysine and arginine. And what this does is when that's mixed into this cloud and the predator kind of goes into this ink cloud, it basically tricks the predator into thinking that the ink itself is an edible food source. What? Oh. So those two amino acids combined um, are a signal to the predators that like, oh, this is food. And it's not food. It is a cloud of ink. So you can see that would be incredibly confusing to the prey. Yeah. Because it's basically thinking that this, that, it's, that this cloud that it's in is food, but it can't find any actual food. But its sensory system is telling it, no, no, you are surrounded by food. It's right here. And there's actually no food to be had. It's just a cloud of ink. That sounds incredibly frustrating. Oh, that sounds so, it's like, if someone put that pizza down in front of you and you're like, it's right there, I can see it, but like, you can't find it, even though you can see it there and you know, and you can smell it and it's, uh -huh. you know it's there, but it's like, maybe you pick it up and you put it in your mouth and you're like, there's no pizza here. It's, That's kind of what they're experiencing. Is it kind of like also where you go down, your fridge is full of food and whatever you want to eat isn't actually there? But you have a bunch of food. Have you ever gone Maybe. through that? Yeah, yeah, I've had that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, you want kinda... something specific and you don't quite know what it is. Well, it's you know, it's definitely if you're surrounded in this cloud, it'd be it'd be confusing, right? But that would be tricky enough. But there's also some interesting other stuff going on. Uh, some chemistry takes place. Um, there's uh, another some other chemicals that are released, and uh, they kind of combine to form this new compound and link together. And the new compound is a feeding deterrent that makes the predator not want to feed, which is very contradictory from being in a cloud of all the stuff you think is food. Mm -hmm. So there's two very contradictory things, but this actual compound is a feeding deterrent and makes the animal not want to eat. And whereas I really don't like the name sea hare, I love what the scientists called this compound. They call it escaping. That's so great. Which is just perfect. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. They Bravo. They Bravo. did a great job. So imagine the confusion of the predator here. They're going in for the attack when suddenly they can't see anything. And then their sensory system gets completely overwhelmed by all these chemicals. They sense that they're surrounded by food, but simultaneously they are repulsed at the thought of eating or something like that. You know, they're, they're, they're not wanting to eat. And in all this confusion, the sea hare is able to escape. So this is called phagiomimicry because the ink actually mimics food. Uh, and the sudden appearance of what the animal detects as food all around it is part of why they are so overwhelmed, uh, which oh, is just so cool. Really I do have cool. a fun, fun crazy, bonus yeah. fact for you as well. Uh, since we talked about sea hares, my, my main topic here was the, the phagiomimicry. But if predators somehow do locate the actual uh, sea hare in all of this, they can also release a slime much like a hagfish. Uh, so phagiomimicry isn't the only trick they know. Uh, they are a pretty cool animal with a lot of ways to survive in the ocean. I also have a bonus factoid. Okay, go for Which it. Which is that my mother had a career in neuroscience, 
and mm-hmm. uh, some of her early work was actually done on aplysia. They are nice. they're a really? model animal in neuroscience research because they have very large neurons that are very well exactly, matched to yeah. specific functions in the body. Yeah, I, I had I had read that they're one of the species that's been studied a lot for that exact reason. So that's that's really cool that you have that personal connection to that. And that is that's why so I knew how to fun. pronounce aplysia. <laughs> right. I I did not do that correctly. Thank you for correcting me. Well, we are going to go to a break. And when we are back, Rachel is going to be up. And I hope she gets to pronounce some words that we can, uh, you know, poke holes in. No. We'll find out. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. So, for my topic this week... I'm, I'm going to take a little detour. So one of my favorite feel-good movies is The Princess Bride. Oh, I love it. Such a great movie. It's such a great movie. That has... is inconceivable that that would be your favorite movie. <laughs> uh, so it's full of many different iconic scenes and lines. Uh, what are some that come to mind? Or iconic scenes that come to mind? Oh. For wait, wait, wait. Is your topic this week Iocane Powder? Is it the shrieking eels? (laughs) The shrieking eel scene, yep. Mm -mm. Um, Oh my gosh. The the resurrection pill. Very good. I like the, uh, you know, think about the castle siege with the the, the flaming robes. What a good time. Uh, Mm. No, mine. The pit of despair. I'm thinking of the fire swamp. The fire swamp. Oh, yes. Where home of the R.U.S.'s. Home R-U-S. of the R.U.S.'s. As well as where Buttercup gets oh, the lightning sucked sand. down a hole. The lightning sand. Are you doing quicksand? I'm doing quicksand. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, so, a childhood favorite of any child who grew up, you know. Truly. I wow. thought that it was going to be a much bigger issue than it actually is in real, in like adult life or in real life right it's but not really a thing not really <laughs> that you no. run into. <laughs> uh but i thought I, I would need to know how to get out of quicksand so of course so quicksand uh, just as a fun overview so quicksand is generally silt or sand or clay that's mixed in with a ton of water mm-hmm. um the silt uh, sand or clay is microscopically dispersed within this water. So it's very widespread. And diffused. it diffused, yes. It is technically a sheer thinning non-Newtonian fluid. Ooh. Okay. All right. Which means that I like nerds, that makes sense to me, but explain right. that to everybody else. <laughs> so that means that when it's undisturbed it looks like it's a solid. It looks like it's completely flat, co- totally fine, solid ground. But when it's uh, agitated or there's even 
just less than 1% change in the stress, it'll cause the viscosity to dramatically decrease, which is what causes that suction. Uh, so it is pretty much like just the soil becomes liquefied and cannot support any weight whatsoever. Uh, so it can form in standing water. It can also form in upward flowing water, like springs. Oh, okay. um, that, that's what I was just going to ask mm -hmm. is if, if it's my impression has been often that it was associated with like with standing water was with, with, oh, with springs. Mm -hmm. Like where there, there's that that water coming up from below. That exactly. Makes sense, I guess. Yeah. So once that pressure changes, it actually triggers the liquefaction. Liquefaction. Mm. Liquefaction. <laughs> uh, and once that liquefaction happens, you're you're not as in trouble as you might think. So quicksand, generally speaking, if for example your foot is you step into something that looks like it's solid and then all of a sudden it changes. To remove your foot, what happens is it causes a sort of suction, but what you need to do is you need to um, press down enough to make it liquid again. So you actually, huh. sort of. Uh, the whole idea is you want to reintroduce enough water to liquefy the area, because what's happening is it's creating a suction. You're getting rid of a lot of the liquid. Um, so if you have a speed, your foot has a speed of 0 0.01 meters per second, super slow, uh, you would need the same force uh, to remove your foot from the quicksand, the same force of lifting a car to get um, your foot out. Oh dear. Wow. I was under the impression the best way to do it was to have a friend cut up a vine Mm -hmm. And hold on to it and dive head first in after you. Truly. That's what they did in the Princess Bride. That's what Wesley did. So I think that, that was I think Wesley the right method. knows I think lightning sand might be a slight difference. Different? I think it has more okay, with uh, gas than anything else. Uh oh, I bet it does. Good call. Yeah. Um on the plus side, humans actually can't entirely sink into quicksand. Uh, just because of how high the density of the fluid is, you end up uh, kind of, you're still floating. stuck, but you end up floating on top it's of like it. It's like a buoyancy issue. The exactly. human body is less dense than the quicksand. Exactly. Yeah. Like aluminum will float on top of quicksand. Um, wow. Yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. Like, I know Mythbusters did a whole myth on how to get out of quicksand what it would take and they were pretty much floating on top of it so <laughs> wow so where can i go to avoid quicksand rachel what a good I mean, uh, you can go to avoid anywhere, it anywhere to avoid it. your backyard your We've, living room but like, if i want to get really, really close to quicksand but avoid it oh i see um so generally it's found on the hollows of like the mouths at large rivers uh, along flat stretches or, or like really big flat stretches of streams or beaches where like uh, a lot of the water pools have become somewhat filled with sand. Uh, if you want, it, it's kind of like a bog. Mm -hmm. 
So you want to go around bogs, you'll find some quicksand. Um, Personally, I would say just avoid walking through it. (laughs) Uh, They're not as common as you would, as like cartoons and everything made uh, (laughs) people think. A lot of people right, also that was think just a of little like, circle of quicksand in the middle right? of <laughs> nowhere. The trail, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, it's most people will also equate it to like the tar pits. Um, following that would be a very similar uh, interaction. There's also mud flats up in Alaska that act very similar to quicksand and have actually killed people because they don't get. It's not so much you get stuck. But you get stuck at the wrong tide, and you can't get out before the tide comes in. All I, of a sudden, I almost got stuck in the Everglades once. Mm-hmm. In a when it when tide went out, and we were in basically the middle of a mud flat, and we were canoeing through mud trying to get to the back to the channel. Oof. And I never canoed paddled so hard in my life. It was uh, <laughs> we made it. We made it. Um, it would have been a long night with the mosquitoes had we not made it back to the channel. Maybe just a little bit, yeah. But generally speaking, the biggest issue when it comes to quicksand is the drowning aspect of, like, it's enough water to potentially have you drown or in case water is coming back in. It's usually, quicksand is generally something that is pretty temporary. So, which makes me very happy that I don't have to deal with it, but also kind of sad because I was fully prepared to get a very long stick to help pull myself out of these quicksand pits. I was, I was ready. Or, you know, just bring a Wesley with you wherever you go. Exactly. And that's what I got for you this week. Uh, when we return from our break, it's going to be Victoria. Okay. I have an interesting story for you today about a woman named Joy Milne. She's a Scottish person. And when she was a teenager in Scotland, she met her husband, Les, and she'd always had a very keen sense of smell. And among other things, one of the things that appealed to her about Les was his personal smell. Um, They got married. Okay. Yeah. Weird thing to let about somebody or notice. Well, you know, there's this whole research about, you know, smell compatibility between people who are attracted to each other that I'm not going to go into because it's not really relevant to my story today. But suffice to say, she liked to smell. Um, They got married. uh, They started careers in medicine. Joy is a nurse, Les is a doctor, and they had three kids. Very happy marriage. But one day, Mm -hmm. about 10 years in, Joy noticed uh, that Les smelled different. He'd come home from work and he had this kind of, she described it as a kind of a yeasty, musty smell. And she told him he needed to take a shower, (laughs) which he did, (laughs) but it did not help. And the smell kept lingering. And, you know, she would tell him over and over again, you know, day after day, he needed to to shower better. Something was wrong with his hygiene and it never helped. And, you know, understandably, Les started to get a little annoyed because he couldn't smell it. Nobody else could smell it. Right, Right. Right. I'd be kind of irritated. Yeah. It'd be one thing. It'd be one thing if like he couldn't smell it. I would get that, but nobody else could as well, right? Yeah, nobody else could smell it. And your wife is just okay. telling you, "You smell. You really need to shower about more and better." And I'd be, I'd be done. Like I have. Stop. That'd be a little tough. 
Yeah. So, you know, Joy eventually just decided she was going to have to live with this smell. As the years passed, however, Les's behavior also began to change. He had been very even-tempered, kind of thoughtful guy, and he became a lot more moody and intolerant, and they started fighting, which they had never really done before. And then one night when Les was 45, this was about 10 years after she first noticed the smell difference, Joy woke up one night to find Les shaking her violently in bed and screaming at her. And he did not remember this in the morning. He was having a nightmare. He was not conscious of what he was doing. But, um, you know, they were afraid he might have a brain tumor. So he went to the doctor and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Oh. Yeah. So they meddled along for about 20 years. You know, it it kept getting more and more difficult. The disease is progressive. Um, Finally, around 2013, they decided to attend a Parkinson's support group near where they lived. And when Joy walked into the room, suddenly this wave of smell (gasps) hit her. No way. Yes. The same smell she had first noticed decades ago when Les's personal scent changed. And in this room, she also noticed that some people smelled more strongly than others. That's crazy. Yeah. Totally crazy. And so she was thinking this over the whole meeting. And on their way home, she decided to tell us about this. And they both, him being a doctor, realized, you know, the possible significance of this. It's a big deal. Yeah. 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 So if Parkinson's disease has a smell and she had smelled it like 10 years before he had symptoms or however long it was. Wow. Right. Wow. wow. Could this be, you know, a possible way to detect early Parkinson's disease in people? So really interesting. Yeah. They decided. And can you train dogs? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, they decided to try to connect up with a Parkinson's researcher, and so they approached Tila Kunath, who was um, at the University of Edinburgh. And at first, he pretty much dismissed Joy. Uh, kind of. Of like, course. She's a crank. You know, <laughs> she can't smell Parkinson's disease. Come on. But a few months later, he was actually reading about cancer detecting dogs that were being trained, and he's like, hmm. Right. Right wonder if there's actually something there. So he got back in touch and he came up with a test for her. He gave a bunch of people a a plain white t-shirt to wear overnight and half of them were Parkinson's patients and half of them were healthy volunteers. And he randomized the t-shirts and he had her smell each one and rate not only if the person had Parkinson's disease, but what stage they were at. So was it early, middle, late? And Joy got every single one right except for she said that one of the control group, one of the non-Parkinson's t-shirts was a Parkinson's t-shirt. Well, come to find several months later, this guy, yep, yep, yep. that one guy comes up to the, to Kunath and says, well, you better put me in the other group. Cause I just got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, no oh, oh my gosh. Wow. She's she got quite a nose. She has quite a nose. So uh, they worked together for quite a few years. And in 2019, they published a paper together, I think with some other researchers, identifying several of the compounds that make up this smell. And other research is ongoing to try to use this information to create a skin-based early detection test for Parkinson's. And other researchers around the world have started working with Joy and have found that she can also smell tuberculosis, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, what? and diabetes. Even- what? what? Yeah. This is a human is she woman. A Did we is miss she part of the story where she's a dog? 
I mean, she has a sense of smell that is, uh, I don't know if it's equal to a dog's, but certainly Amazing. for a human, outstanding. Do, do her children have this? Can they smell it? I, uh, do they have insanely good noses? I guess not. I mean, it wasn't mentioned. I feel like it would have been if, if they did. But Oh, oh you my know, gosh. You've brought up dogs several times. And Alzheimer's? Yeah. Crazy. So you brought up dogs several times. Dogs are have been and are being trained to detect various diseases, um, including some of the ones that the joy can smell, and also um, even possibly brain injuries. And the latest research out of Finland is COVID nineteen. Um, you also Fun. have to wonder if there are other people out there who can smell as well as she can, uh, but you know just haven't been connected up to science or never kind of made the connections that she just made. Just don't realize why they things smell weird to them, yeah. Yes. Right. I wonder too, there's such a connection between smell and taste. If some people if there's some people who, you know, can could taste it. Um maybe. Like, yeah, I mean yes, it's actually the smell. It's not it's not actually the tasting, but that they're right. they think they maybe think of themselves as, oh foods taste kinda weird to me and you know, but it's just that they uh, actually maybe. have a super we talk about super tasters. You don't really hear about super smellers, but I wonder how often it's connected to your Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good line of thought. And actually, smell has been used for hundreds of years, if not thousands, to detect some types of disease. So, like, for example, battlefield medics and surgeons could sniff out gangrene because it has a particular foul smell. Um, mm-hmm. if, you sm- if you smell kind of a fruity nail polish scent on somebody's breath, that's actually a sign of a complication of diabetes where your body actually produces acetone, which is stuff in nail polish remover. Um, and in fact, oh. the urine of diabetics also has a sweet smell because it literally has sugar in it. And there's something called maple syrup urine disease, which is a metabolic disease. It's not great. Um, but, you know, these are scents that most humans can detect and learn to recognize. And what Joy Milne does and what dogs can do, obviously, is much rarer. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is ongoing research and where it could really come in handy um, is diseases that are not currently detectable, at least until they're in their very later stages, like ovarian cancer, for example, um, right. or ones like Parkinson's where they start developing so long before any symptoms show up. And Yeah. Just or even a, Alzheimer's, too. Yeah, Alzheimer's. Wow. Whoa. So, an amazing woman with an amazing talent. That's all I have for you on that subject today. And we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.